Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the executive director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nouwen to audiences around the world. We invite you to share these podcasts and our free daily meditations with your friends and family. Through them, we can continue to introduce new audiences to the writings and the teachings of Henry Nouwen, and we can remind each listener that they're a beloved child of God. Now, let me take a moment to introduce you to today's guest. Today on this podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Reverend Adam Russell Taylor. Adam's the president of Sojourners and the author of the book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Adam led the Faith Initiative at the World Bank Group and served as president in charge of advocacy at World Vision USA. He has also served as the executive director of Global Justice, an organization that educates and mobilizes students around global human rights and economic justice. He was selected in 2009-2010 for the class of White House Fellows and served in the White House Office of Cabinet Affairs and Public Engagement. Taylor is a graduate of Emory, the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government, and the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology. Adam and I recently met for coffee here in Toronto. He's someone with his finger on the pulse of America, and I want us to hear what he has to say today. Adam Russell Taylor, welcome to Henry Now and Now and Then. Thank you so much. First of all, maybe let's just go back to this wonderful book that you wrote, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. In it, you share this bold vision that you have and uh, to replace the politics of fear and contempt that seem to dominate America today. I'd love to chat with you a little bit about what your thoughts are about that, because in a sense, that's exactly where we are today. There's a lot of things to be concerned about. What is your sense about how to go forward? Yeah, I wish that things have gotten better since I wrote the book about a little over two years ago, rather than worse. But sadly, I think some of the forces that have been driving so much of that contempt and so much of that fear and even hatred have only been reinforced versus, you know, being diminished. And so, you know, I would argue that we're in a pretty fragile and even dangerous place, kind of an inflection moment in American politics. And I think it's probably had ripple effects in Canada as well. And you could reflect on that during the course of our conversation today. But I'll just give you a couple of statistics that help to illustrate where we are. So one is that Pew and other polling firms have you know, polled thousands of Americans, and they have found that not only do the majority of Republicans and Democrats dislike and distrust each other. That's been true for, for quite a while. We've now reached, reached this more dangerous place where the majority actually hate each other and have contempt for each other. And instead of wanting to try to persuade the other side about their point of view, they want to simply defeat the other side. And so it's part of the reason why I describe the kind of degree of polarization that we've reached in the U.S. is being toxic because it's reached this kind of self-perpetuating place. And it's also it's what a lot of psychologists describe as effective polarization. So it's where our divisions are increasingly tied to our core identity. And increasingly in the United States, identity is being tied to your 
loyalty and identification with a political party or an ideology or even to a particular political leader. And that is really hard to break through. And, and part of what breaks my heart as someone who believes in the power of love to overcome fear and leaves as a Christian that we're called to the ministry of reconciliation is that so often the American church has been a part of the problem rather than the solution. Certainly that's not true of all the church. There's many of us and many organizations, including sojourners, that are trying to be a healing force and a bridging force in the midst of this polarization. But I do think that sadly, and we can you know unpack this more, our faith, our religion is being much more influenced by our politics rather than our faith influencing our politics. And it's almost as though, you know, kind of rather than a kind of lordship in Christ, we're seeing a lordship in political party or an ideology. And to me, that is kind of a form of idolatry that we have to take very seriously. And we need a bolder Christian witness in the, in, in the, in the face of that. It's interesting to me as we talk, our audience is a global audience. It's not just the United States, although many, many, many of uh, the Henry Nowen community is based in the United States, but our audience actually stretches right around the world. And as you said, it it's obviously in Canada too. It's interesting that this divisiveness, many can identify it in their own country. It's not just in America. So there's a timeliness to what's going on, it seems. One of the things that comes to mind to me is that the divisions of the body of Christ seem to be deepening. What can the individual Christian do to resist this divisiveness? Yeah, I think there's a lot that an individual Christian can do. And I, and I appreciate your point that this truly is kind of a global contagion, if you will. It's a global challenge. It might show up slightly differently in different parts of the world, but we have the rise of many different forms of nationalism. So part of this polarization, I think, is also being fueled by nationalism. So there's a Hindu nationalism that is quite powerful in India right now. There's, you know, the kind of dangerous rise of a lot of authoritarian and in some case cases fascist leaders. So I think there's a lot that we need to learn from each other. Um, but in terms of what an individual Christian can do, one thing that you can do, and I'm not, not saying this as a shameless plug for my book, but we can be <laughs> a lot more aware of how our brains are often hardwired for division. We have this kind of flight or uh, fight response that you know has kind of been well known in the field of psychology, but cognitive research has shown us a lot more how we have this confirmation bias, for example, where because certain frames get planted in our heads, we have a certain worldview, if you will, when new information comes to us that doesn't match our pre-existing frame that information just bounces off. And it's part of the reason why, particularly when people are often in almost their own kind of media information bubble, it makes it very difficult to try to persuade them with facts or figures because it just kind of bounces off their sense of reality. Um, there's also another kind of brain malfunction, if you will, called the halo effect, where if we identify strongly with something, like we like something very strongly, this include that can, can include a, a politician, then it makes it very difficult for us to hear any kind of criticism about that politician because any criticism toward them feels like a criticism of us. 
And I think that's part of the reason why the support for former President Trump has remained so strong among his most ardent supporters. I wrote a piece about this in, in our, our Sojourners publication that helps to explain why after each of the four indictments that have happened over the last year have just reinforced the support among his core supporters, about probably about 35% of the population in the United States. So I'm, I'm, there's a lot more that I can point to, but I'm just kind of sharing this because while on the one hand, our brains are hardwired for division and polarization, our faith should hardwire us for unity and reconciliation. And so I think this is a, a time for Christians to offer kind of a countercultural force, a countercultural witness. Christ called us to be salt and light in the world. And so you know, the commitment to loving our enemies is quite radical right now in the midst of this contempt and this polarization, a commitment to really try to seek reconciliation, to show empathy toward the other and toward the marginalized. All of these kind of core teachings and, and kind of commitments of our faith are actually the very things we need to heal some of our broken politics. I think the other, other piece is that, in my mind, the church should be a place where people from very different backgrounds and very different points of view politically and ideo ideologically can still come together and have fellowship with each other, where they can center their unity in Christ, which should supersede any loyalty that we have to a political party or ideology, et cetera. Unfortunately, almost the exact opposite is happening in many churches, not just in the United States, but across the world, where your kind of political perspective or your cultural background is almost a proxy for your Christian faithfulness. And, and again, I think that's something that we really have to resist, that we need to create a space within the church where we can be grounded in some shared Christian values and allow those values to create enough unity that enables us to have the hard conversations about a lot of sensitive or controversial, controversial issues whether it's you know everything from abortion to issues around gay marriage or to a whole series of economic and political issues. The last thing I'll just say that is, I, I do think that it is incumbent upon Christians to use their voice to defend the dignity of every single person and to try to defend, particularly for those of us that live in democracies, even if they're imperfect, the right for everyone to vote, to have a voice, to be able to exercise their agency through the political process. And in the United States context, we've seen this really alarming assault, if you will, on the right to vote, particularly impacting black and brown communities. And it's really, really critical that not only do we defend the right to vote, but we also you know, try to make our democracies more free and fair and responsive. So those are just a, a handful of things, but I, but I think there's there's so much that is needed in this moment, and it's going to take a little bit more courage than I think a lot of Christians have been willing to to show. It's interesting because as I look back and and I've been at many events, um, gatherings in the states, and often felt like somehow faith got wrapped in a flag, but our faith is so much richer than the culture of our countries, and. I love America. I love Canada. I, I love the countries of the world. I truly admire the courage that I see in Ukraine. But our faith has to be bigger and richer and deeper, don't you think? Absolutely. Um, 
you know, as, as I mentioned briefly, I do think nationalism, and in the case of the United States, we have this kind of white Christian nationalism, which is a particular version of it, that is arguably the biggest danger, not just to the health of America's democracy, but is the biggest threat to the witness of the church itself. In the case of the United States, this kind of you know, form of Christian nationalism that says that we really are and should be a Christian nation. In other words, Christians should have this kind of dominant voice and role in American life, even though we have enshrined a commitment to the separation of church and state in the First Amendment of our Constitution that says the exact opposite, right? It says we should have the free exercise of religion and there should be no established religion in this country. But then on top of that, there's kind of this ethno-nationalist view that it's really white Americans are the true Americans. And of course, this has been a struggle since the very inception of America, where you know we you know, treated black Americans as less than full humans and only gave the right to vote to white landowning males. And so, you know, I think we've got this kind of ongoing struggle about who the we and the we the people truly includes and whether we are going to be a country that is going to fully embrace being a multi-religious, multi-racial democracy. And, you know, I, part, of, part of the reason I wrote that book is I was trying to create a roadmap on how we could get to that inclusive, just multi-racial, multi-religious democracy. But, you know, you've got these, these forces that, you know, really are, are a heresy. They are a distortion of the Christian faith. And there's subtle versions of it, and there's more overt versions of it. You know, the overt, overt version showed up on January 6th, where a lot of the protesters, the insurrectionists, literally were praying before they engaged in insurrection in our capital. They were holding crisp, uh, crosses, and they had, you know, signs that <laughs> talked about how Jesus was behind their, their cause. And so I think, you know, that form is fairly easy to repudiate. But the more subtle versions that have seeped into the church are often more challenging to identify because they have been kind of intertwined with a lot of the American ethos and myths about the country. So this kind of myth that we are a Christian nation that I mentioned earlier, the myth that we are a chosen nation, that God has a particular chosenness for America, which has, again, been with us from the very beginning, the myth that we're an innocent nation, that we do no wrong. All of those provide these kind of on-ramps into much more dangerous forms of Christian nationalism that, again, I think are antithetical to the teachings of Jesus, but also are kind of perversion of our faith. So I think this is a moment where it's important for us to kind of name and resist those, those perversions of our faith, but also to be clearer about, you know, what our faith actually means and how we put that into our public life. Uh, Dr. King has a quote that I absolutely love, Dr. Martin Luther King, where he said, the church is at its best is called not to be the master or the servant of the state, but to be the conscience of the state. And what I love about that quote is there's so much temptation for the church to try to be the master of the state, to kind of be the one controlling the state. And then oftentimes in the process of doing that, it becomes subservient to the state. It kind of gets co-opted into the state. This is exactly what happened with the religious right movement in the United States. And what I think our faith really calls us to do is to be this conscience, 
to be the ones that are holding our politicians accountable to our core values, that are the constant voice for those that don't have as strong of a voice in our countries or in our communities, to be a voice that is protecting the most vulnerable and the most marginalized, the modern day widows, orphans, strangers, and people living in poverty in our current time. To me, that is the vocation of the church that is so needed. And then, you know, combined with that kind of advocacy voice, we also need to be that voice that refuses to demonize our political opponents that, you know, shows this resilient love. I wanted to share a, a quote by Henry Nowen, given, you know, <laughs> the focus of our We're conversation. Henry Nowen here. Yeah. <laughs> he once said, in a world so torn apart by rivalry, anger, and hatred, we have the privileged vocation to be living signs of love that can bridge all divisions and heal all wounds. I just love how he, you know, points us in this in this in this direction of of a vocation that is about living signs of love that then bridge divisions and heal wounds. And there's a lot of people across the world, including in the United States, that are deeply wounded right now. That are are kind of lost. They're they're searching for belonging. They're searching for meaning. They're you know in the United States we are dealing with a epidemic of loneliness an epidemic of suicide that often is tied to that loneliness, an epidemic of grievance and, and kind of people that just feel really angry. And, you know, I think you don't respond to that by just showing contempt toward them or blaming them. You respond to that with empathy and respond to that with really trying to engage them in a loving way and, you know, try to disciple them into a greater commitment to justice, to peace and to steadfast love. You know, it's interesting, uh, when we were talking last in person over a cup of coffee, I was sharing with you about this wonderful series of videos that we found. And in fact, they're on our YouTube channel. They We first aired them, I think, in January of this year. And Henry was addressing a gathering of at Sojourners. And Sojourners had brought together all the people that were kind of frontline social justice workers. And Henry came with very much the message that you can get burned out on the front line. There's no two ways about it. Your passion to change the world and to, to right the wrongs can be so demanding on the spirit that you can get somehow dried out. And he was basically calling everybody, remember to keep this relationship, this contemplative connection to your God, to God who can resource you and who can, um, in, a, in a way, strengthen you in, in that time. Um, not saying that it wasn't important, but rather that it was so important that everybody needs to do that. How do you, Adam, stay deeply connected to Jesus in all of this? I mean, it is kind of an overwhelming time in so many ways. How do you get resourced in this living faith and find in it the strength to keep going, not to be discouraged? It is a great question. And, you know, I have to admit, I have been on a learning curve when it comes to that over <laughs> the course of my vocation and career. I, one, just realized that I stand on the backs of those who came before me. And I think about that in the context of a cloud of witnesses. I'm sitting in a room that literally has a whole series of just really amazing portraits or photos of all of these witnesses that have come before me and, and us as sojourners, you know, people like Dr. Martin Luther King, but also, you know, so many others. Um, and so 
I think I think that's one part of it. I also think about the the cloud of witnesses, of course, from the Bible, um, from Joseph to Moses, uh, all the prophets. I mean, I, that that is a huge part of what kind of sustains me is kind of listening to their struggles and listening to the way in which God was able to use them despite all of their imperfections and all their weaknesses and all their doubts. And yet, you know, we're able to, you know, push forward. Um, another, another kind of important spiritual exercise for me is I get a lot of joy and communion with God through running. Um, I've been running my whole life. I used to be a sprinter. I don't sprint anymore because <laughs> I have a bad back, but I do run. And, you know, it's just a commitment at least once a week, hopefully more than that. I run through a beautiful park in, in D.C. called Rock Creek Park. And I have a particular route. It's about a 5K run. So I'm not talking about marathons here, but you know, enough to get a good a good exercise. And there's a particular rock that is in this creek that I, I kind of, you know, climb to. And I just sit there and I listen to the water and I go into a deep sense of prayer. And there's a particular prayer that Richard Rohr, uh, a father, Richard Rohr, who founded the Center for Contemplation Action, Tommy, it's very simple, but it's, you know, based on the psalm, be still and know that I am God. And I say that all together and then take a deep breath and kind of center myself. And then I say just part of it. So, you know, I basically take one part off each time. So be still and know, be still, and then finally be. And this is kind of being, being connected to God, trusting in God, leaning on God, surrendering to God, like that. That is so critical for this work. And then I guess the last thing I have to remember is that I it's really important to take a long view that, you know, we can get discouraged. We can get deflated very easily by, you know, the current state of affairs, if you will, all the crises we faced as a world and within our communities and countries. And, you know, I really have to remember that this battle is not ours, it's God's. And that ultimately, you know, through Jesus and his ultimate sacrifice, we have the ultimate victory um, over sin, over death, over injustice. I mean, the, the cross that so many of us wear, I really take seriously because Jesus transformed the symbol of brutality and oppression in the in Roman times into our symbol of salvation and liberation. And so, you know, that kind of gives me strength for sure and, and gives me a sense of hope. It's interesting when you describe yourself as a runner, immediately I see that scene in Chariots of Fire where Eric Liddell says, you know, I, when I run, I feel his pleasure. And I think it's wonderful to feel that when we're doing what God's called us to do, we feel his pleasure. And God does give us that sense. And I love what you just shared really moves me. I want people, I, I mean, the last time you and I talked, we talked a lot about your book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. It's a wonderful book. I really have enjoyed it. And I'd, I'd just love to give you a chance just, just maybe to say a little bit more about the beloved community. Why that title? Take us there. I would love to. And I, I, I admit, I did a little bit of homework before we going to have this podcast and and just kind of reread some of my favorite Henny Nowen quotes. So I want to share one that connects action and contemplation, because that's the other thing I just want to emphasize is that 
one of the things I've learned as I become more mature in my activism and in my career is that I used to kind of put my action in one place over here and then my contemplation over here. And now I realize that they are like synergistically connected, right? That we need like contemplation helps to prepare us for action. So, so Henry Nowen once said, Christian life is not a, is not a life divided between times for action and times for contemplation. No real social action is a way of contemplation and real contemplation is the core of social action. I couldn't say it better. And so again, the more we can try to fuse these together, I think, I think is, is important. In terms of the beloved community. So I grew up very much infatuated with the civil rights struggle. I grew up kind of in the shadow of the civil rights struggle. I was born in 1976. I talk about it in my book, a little bit of my story. My, my parents made the controversial decision to get married to each other in 1968. Controversial because my mother's black and my, my father's white. And they instilled in me this strong belief that my generation inherited the unfinished business of the civil rights struggle. So I took that very seriously as, as I was growing up. And as I read as much as I could get my hands on about the civil rights struggle, I started hearing about this moral vision, this concept of the beloved community. It showed up in a lot of Dr. King's speeches, but also Ella Baker and Congressman John Lewis and so many others would reference the beloved community. When Dr. King had his first major victory in Montgomery during the bus boycott, in his victory speech, he described that the ultimate goal of the civil rights struggle was redemption. The ultimate goal was reconciliation. The ultimate goal was the creation of the beloved community. So for Dr. King, he understood that the kind of North Star of the, of the civil rights movement was this vision of the beloved community. And what's interesting is he referenced it a lot, but he never had like one speech where he fully defined it. I mean, he talked about how it's a commitment to nonviolence, to equality, to what he called agape love, this kind of unconditional selfless love. And so we know some of the elements of it. But what I realized is that this was a vision that in some ways needs to be reimagined, recast for our contemporary times. And that it's not a vision that has been kind of co-opted yet or caricatured yet by one particular side, if you will, or one particular voice. And so, so for me, the beloved community and this is my most succinct definition, is to build a society, to create countries and a world where everyone is valued, everyone is respected, where everyone is enabled to thrive, and where neither punishment nor privilege is tied to our race or ethnicity or our religion or our sexual orientation. In other words, you know, we are you know, literally affirming and protecting the Imago Dei in everyone. And, you know, I know that that's a kind of a big vision, but I actually think it's a vision that would inspire and resonate with the vast majority of people in the world. And it's not just a Christian vision, even though it's rooted in a lot of Christian values, it's a vision that's rooted in a Jewish understanding of tikkun olam, the kind of healing and repairing of the world. It's a vision that is, it shows up in lots of different cultural traditions. And so, you know, I, I make the argument in my book that we've got a lot of pernicious narratives and pernicious visions, one of them being the kind of Christian nationalist vision that we talked about earlier, 
that are dominating our politics. And you can't counteract a kind of negative pernicious vision unless you have a more positive, unifying and inspiring vision. And so the beloved community to me is still the most hopeful vision that I think could replace and counteract some of these harmful visions. Um, so that's what I really try to unpack in the book. And I, I talk about all of these, what I call beatitudes of the, of the beloved community, things like commitment to Imago Dei equality, to Ubuntu interdependence, to radical welcome, to nonviolence and to human dignity. But you you use the word Ubuntu, Ubuntu. How do I say that? And what does it mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah Ubuntu, Ubuntu. What does that mean? It is something that is, re it's a concept, a kind of belief system, if you will, that really influenced me. Well, it's influenced me for a long time, but but I really discovered it when I went to study abroad in Cape Town, South Africa in 1995. So just about a, like a little over a year after Nelson Mandela was elected the first black president of South Africa. And Ubuntu, I think is, kind of captured best by Archbishop Bishop Desmond Tutu, who said, I am because we are. It is this really deep understanding that our lives truly are interconnected or interdependent. And that I can't fully realize my full potential unless you realize your full potential. I'd like to describe it as the golden rule on steroids. I mean, it very much is like the golden rule, but it kind of takes the golden rule and then you know goes even further. And so what I describe in my book is this, this concept of Ubuntu interdependence is both very much found in our faith tradition. So when Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 58 describes the kind of worship that pleases God the most, he literally describes a commitment to feeding the hungry and breaking the yoke of injustice is when not only God will be pleased, but then our light will shine like a noonday after we do those things, right? And so, you know, it's this understanding that our wholeness is tied to the wholeness of others. Our liberation is tied to the liberation of others. And, you know, we can't limit who that other is because God doesn't limit who the other is. There is no other for God. <laughs> They're all made in God's image. And so I think it's this, this really beautiful understanding and, and concept that I think is kind of an ethic that has often been missing in our Western capitalist context, and, and particularly in the American context. The American ethos has often been rugged individualism, which I think at, at worst has become this kind of sanctified selfishness. And that really is contrary to this commitment to interdependence that I think is found throughout our faith traditions. And, you know, really should show up not just in how we treat each other, but also should show up in how, what we prioritize in terms of our, our public policy decisions and our budget decisions and more. It's interesting to me that um, Henry Nowen arrived as a student here in uh, North America, first at the Menninger Clinic, and then he went on to teach at uh, Notre Dame and Yale, etc. But when he arrived, he was just so... Uh, drawn to what he was seeing happening with Dr. King. And he wanted mm. to be part of it. And when King called for the ministers to come, he came and he went, he marched with him to Montgomery. And then when when Martin Luther King died, he he was he couldn't stay away. He had to come and be together with everyone and, and mourn. And so I know at the very root of Henry Now was his sense this is something so important 
that's happening and I want to be part of it. And the godly part wants to be part of it, wants to join in and be a part of this. I love the fact that, you know, that you call this the beloved community and you've explained it well. It's interesting because Henry took it down to the personal level. You know, it really is, as people read Henry, it's a very intimate kind of thing. And it tends to be, he's basically saying, you are beloved. And most of us doubt it when we're very intimate with ourselves. It's kind of like, how could God love me? You know, who I really am. But that call that God does see you as beloved, does see every single one as beloved is really incredible. And it becomes the fabric that intertwines with your Ubuntu uh reality here i think it's it's pretty wonderful um over the years henry made a great distinction between productivity and fruitfulness and uh, you know sojourners has sowed seeds of justice for more than half a century can you share with us the fruit that's being harvested at the intersection of faith and public life because i think there is a fruitfulness and there's a you know that there's that whole business of a long journey in the same direction not turning back. You can make mistakes, but you keep going. Tell me a bit about the fruitfulness that Sojourners is seeing. Uh, so we, as an organization, and in a broader sense, as kind of a community and movement, celebrated 50 years this last year. And we kind of stretched over two years because of the pandemic. But in the course of that, just to, had a chance to really reflect on our history. And I won't tell all that history, but we were actually founded in Chicago. And the original kind of magazine of the organization was called the Post-American. And then about four years later, that small community decided to move to DC and they wanted to create a new name. And so I, I found out that one of the choices was Solomon's Portico. Another choice was The Way. And then the third one was Sojourners. And they chose Sojourners because of it's real deep, deeper meaning. It you know, literally is to be on a spiritual pilgrimage, to be in but not of the world. And this kind of sense of sojourning, like when, when anyone, you know, ends up transitioning to new opportunities from our staff, we always say, you know, once a sojourner, always a sojourner. Because, <laughs> you know, we're we're on this kind of journey together. So so I think some of the fruits that I see around us is, you know, one. And this is through some of our efforts through a, a broad campaign called Face United to Save Democracy, which we are doing in conjunction with the National African American Clergy Network and a whole bunch of other organizations. And the, the kind of organization that our founder, Jim Wallace, went on to create at Georgetown called the Center for Faith and Justice. But that campaign is literally mobilizing thousands of Black clergy and uh, white mainline allies and evangelical allies and people from the Latino church. And then more recently, we brought in rabbis and in some cases, imams to be on the front lines of protecting everyone's what we call the sacred right to vote and to try to ensure that we do in fact have free, fair and safe elections in the United States. All nonpartisan work. We're not you know, doing this to you know, advantage one political party or the other. We're doing it because at the heart of a healthy democracy is the free exercise of everyone voting. And we see it as a kind of assault on Imago Day when we deny someone or we limit their ability to vote. And so on election day, we have trained and then deployed hundreds and hundreds of what we call poll chaplains. And these are clergy that are literally in their clergy, you know, outfits, if you will, attire, who provide a moral presence at polling sites 
and are able to answer people's questions, are able to direct people to a hotline if they're having challenges, and, and you know, can really be a deterrent to intimidation and even violence. And it's kind of sad that we even have to say that we need that in this particular day and age, but we have seen the threat of violence at both toward poll workers, but also toward voters in the last couple of elections. So to me, the, the fruit is like that commitment to be a moral presence, to be the conscience, as I described earlier, is really inspiring. The other example I'll, I'll, I'll point to is that we helped to co-create this coalition called the Circle of Protection. And to me, it's one of the most hopeful examples of how despite many different theological and political differences, a huge cross-section of the church have managed to come together and advocate together to protect funding in the US federal budget that helps to protect those who are most vulnerable, particularly people living in poverty or very close to poverty. And this started about 10 years ago where there was a big fight over our, our budget and there was a you know an effort to dramatically reduce our deficit and you know we decided in that moment to start mobilizing faith leaders to both pray for that budget negotiation and to fast and to make a commitment that we would advocate with our voices and with our fasting that programs that benefit those who are most vulnerable are not included in the kind of negotiation rounds or what was cut and what was kept. And we were successful in convincing President Obama at the time and the Speaker of the House at the time, John Boehner, to literally take out programs like food stamps and housing assistance from the chopping block, essentially, and you know, ended up protecting billions and billions of dollars for programs that are literally a lifeline to those who are most vulnerable in the United States. And that coalition has kept together. So it literally includes like the Catholic Conference of Bishops. It includes the National Association of Evangelicals. It includes the National Council of Churches. And they, and, you know, clearly like they don't agree on a lot of things, but they come together in a very strategic, very committed way to advocate in a concerted fashion to ensure that we have bipartisan support for these programs that we believe are a reflection of our faith values. And so, you know, it's really had a huge impact ever since. And, you know, most recently, we had a really huge victory in expanding this program called the Child Tax Credit that provides funding to, to families so they can better, you know, support their, their kids. And that victory literally lifted 40 plus percent of kids living in poverty out of poverty in the United States. Now, sadly, it, it expired, or at least the expansion of it expired. So now we're now advocating to get it back. But it's the kind of example of of what can be done when we work together and we we uh, we find that common ground. You know, America has for all of us, for nations around the world, been uh, put forth a model. You know, the the model of democracy. We never envisioned that it was so fragile, but we see that today. But I would love to hear from you. What makes you hopeful when you look at the global church? Because we're talking to a global audience. And this is wonderful to see the very practical roll up your sleeves. How do we bring our faith to bear on the country we are in? But what do you see for the global church? One, I, I see a lot of hope in the, in the in the sense that the kind of epicenter of Christianity has really shifted to Africa and Latin America and parts of Southeast Asia, where you know, they are 
finding expressions of Christian faith that I think are really, really powerful. And that there's a lot that we in the quote unquote West can learn from, you know, for a long time, Christianity was in some ways over influenced by the American church or the North American church. And, you know, now we've got this kind of real shift. And so, you know, for example, you know, the, the kind of fastest growing parts of Christianity are very much connected to the kind of Pentecostal movement. And in some cases, the charismatic movement and this real emphasis on the power of the Holy spirit and the power of just a really deep personal redeeming relationship with Christ, I think is still really needed <laughs> and it is and it's a really powerful force. And so, you know, I, I hope that some of that can continue to spill over into, uh, you know, how we think about our faith and how we think about our relationship with Christ and in, in, in North America. Um, I've been, I've been really inspired by many Christian organizations in other parts of the world that continue to be on the front lines of meeting people's needs. So all across Southern Africa in, in, in particular, the church is still one of the biggest providers of healthcare is the biggest responder when it, when a disaster strikes. And so to me, that is like putting our faith into action to meet people's needs and, and to treat their needs as holy. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that there's some really hopeful examples of where Christians are, are, are really being bold in the context of peace building and peacemaking. We have supported an initiative that's actually in the Catholic community called the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative where we're trying to support and, and kind of amplify the work of Christian, well, in this case, Catholic peacemakers all around the world. And we're actually trying to convince the Vatican and ultimately Pope Francis to ideally you know, put forth a, a new encyclical that would really be focused on peacemaking, that would rewrite just war theory, which often puts too much emphasis on the option of war or the, you know, kind of, you know, war as, as a mean to, means to resolve conflict and instead really emphasizes the, the call to peacemaking. So those are, those are, you know, some of the examples that, that I'm seeing. Um, we're, as sojourners, we have always been connected to the global body of Christ and we'll try to lift up voices of Christians that are being courageous with their faith and advancing justice in lots of different ways. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm really committed to is to continue to do more of that and to also try to support kind of a next generation of Christian leaders that are in particularly context where it's very risky for Christians to speak out against injustice, either because of an autocratic government or a corrupt government or an authoritarian government. And, you know, I, you know, while while it's extremely challenging, I still feel like there's a, a real opportunity and a real need for more Christians to, to stand in the gap and, and to be willing to, to take that kind of position or role. I am so grateful that Sojourners exists. And for those who are listening, perhaps you don't know about Sojourners. Go to your webpage and discover it and sign up. It's really worth knowing Sojourners and, and their publications. They're, they're excellent. And of course, I love... Uh, Adam's book, A More Perfect Union, uh, a new vision for building the beloved community. Adam, it's a delight to chat with you today. It really is. You're, you're a force of uh, 
a force for good, I would say. I know that Henry and Jim Wallace were good friends, and I know if Henry lived, he would just love to be your friend too, because you're you got feet on the ground, but you've got a heart for action, and it's pretty exciting to see that, and to see you you building up young leaders and and calling them forth, and and maybe even providing protection for them. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Karen. Really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. What an honor for me to spend time with Reverend Adam Russell Taylor, the author of A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Henry Nouwen was inspired by, and in turn was a source of spiritual inspiration for sojourners when he was alive. Jim Wallace and Henry were friends. I'm delighted to see the wonderful work Sojourners continues to do now under the leadership of Adam Russell Taylor. To find out more about Sojourners and their amazing resources, go to sojo.net. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more resources related to this program, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You'll find links to anything mentioned today, as well as book suggestions. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you'd take time to give us a review or a thumbs up, or pass us on to your friends and companions on the faith journey. Thanks for listening. Until next time.